Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the unfolding of your words does give light and understanding to the simple. So would you enlighten our dark minds tonight? Would you grant us understanding, grant us spiritual wisdom that we may learn how to live and please you, to know what it is to be found in you. For Jesus' sake, amen. This text begins and it tells us that the Christian faith is like unto a race. The Christian faith is like a race. It's not a walk, it's a race. And if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are in this race whether you like it or not. But the question is, are you really running? Are you running the race? You don't enter a race to walk, you enter a race to run, to seek to run as fast or far as you can with the eyes fixed on the finish line. And this way, this, you could say, this race of faith, it's what we're called to. This is the whole of the Christian life. Everything the Lord has set before us um, I know our brother Keith likes to talk about the fight of faith. If you were ever a student in his Sunday school class, you would have heard lots about the fight of faith. But this is the race of faith, the race of faith. And if you're entered into a race, you want to persevere, to endure unto the end. And this is the way it is in our Christian life. We're called to run. We're called to persevere, to go in the path the Lord has set before us. And in the book of Hebrews, the author is very concerned that the church perseveres in the faith. One of the main themes of this book is giving warnings against falling away, against leaving Christ, about succumbing to the pressures of the world. The apostle wants to encourage the church to persevere, to flee the deceitfulness of sin, to endure in belief that they might inherit that promised rest, that rest that remains for the people of God. Now, Jesus Christ is held up as the preeminent example of perseverance, that he's the apostle, the captain of our salvation. Christ is our greatest example, but there are also human examples. And we read the end of Hebrews 11, and Hebrews 11 is often called the hall of faith. It's a list, a portrait of many saints who've gone before us who have run the race of faith and who have run it well. We hear examples from Abraham to Moses to even nameless people that endured persecution and suffering for the sake of Christ. And these people of faith, their lives of faith, encourage us in our faith. And so when our text begins, it discusses this great cloud of witnesses that we're surrounded by. That seeing as we're surrounded by them, we ought to be all the more encouraged to run. It's almost as if you could think that every faithful saint who has gone before, from biblical times through to the great men and women who have lived and the ones that we've never met, almost as in the grandstands, as you and I are on the race 
of faith. All these people we would revere and look up to in the grandstands, cheering you on, saying, persevere in the faith, run the race of the faith, through suffering, through trials, through temptations, persevere because there's a crown at the end. Angels and saints looking down. This is no small race. It's the greatest race and the stakes are high. It's eternity at stake. And as we look at this text, I want us to see tonight some hindrances to the race, some obstacles that we encounter as we seek to persevere in the race of faith. I know uh, Pastor Mark says that he usually despises sermons based on three alliterated points. So I figured naturally I would construct a sermon based on three alliterated points. So as we're looking at three, three obstacles to our race that I want to see in this text, the first obstacle is that of disobedience. Our text reads, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Disobedience, sin, it hinders us in the race. First, disobedience. Secondly, the obstacle of discouragement. Where we're called, the verse says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We need endurance, perseverance, because we are so easily discouraged and ready to stop and slow down. Thirdly, the obstacle of distraction. It's so easy to lose sight of the goal, to lose sight of the mission. And so our text calls us to flee distraction by looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So firstly, the hindrance of disobedience. To lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Here, sin is likened to a weight that's on us, a weight that clings to us. And if you're interested in running, you know that you don't want to be running with weights on you. You want to shed all the weight you can to be light, to be free. If you are seeking to go on a long backpacking trip, you don't want extra weight. You want to only take what's necessary and avoid unnecessary weights. And the problem with sin is that sin is deceitful. Hebrews 3 talks about how we have deceitful desires because none of us desires sin as an evil, but only as a perceived good. We buy the lie that we will gain something good from sin when in reality, it's just a weight that slows us down. I remember the first time I ever got to go on a beautiful British Columbian backpacking trip on the Juan de Fuca Trail on Vancouver Island. I was brand new, so you know, you go into Canadian Tire and I'm looking at all the different supplies I need and lo and behold, there before me is one of those wonderful as seen on TV items called the Easy Chair. Easy Chair. You know that sort of thing. And the Easy Chair, it is this little metal frame and it folds up nice and flat and I thought, I could just open my little easy chair everywhere we go, this will be wonderful. But the mockery I received for this easy chair, it barely supported my weight and I didn't realize the inconvenience of having to pull it out of my backpack every time we took a break. And not to mention, there's a plethora of rocks and logs to sit on almost everywhere you go. So this would just ended up being this unnecessary weight, this unnecessary bulk in my pack that I thought would be this wonderful help to my hiking. And this is what sin is like. It's a trick, a deception into believing something will be a good to us when really it's a hindrance. And ought not we desire to put off all hindrances 
in the race of faith. Because what, what does running the Christian race with weights of sin on you feel like? What it does is it stagnates your relationship with the Lord. It decreases your fruitfulness, and it steals your joy. That's what it is to live with the weight of sin on you, weight of willful sin, to have joy sucked out of your life, to feel weighed down, to struggle to persevere. And so what is the answer in our text to the weight of sin? Well, it says, lay it aside or cast it aside. This is that idea of what we often talk about in Reformed circles as the mortification of sin, to put sin to death. And there's much we could say about that, but I think the main principle here, a preeminent thing, is that it must be cast aside. Sin isn't something to be tamed or to be controlled, but it must be completely killed. Scripture calls us to put to death the deeds of the body. It's a principle of no compromise. We have to have a zero-tolerance attitude to sin. And I wanted to just look at one verse on this that we could look at many, but this verse really struck me recently in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 22, with this principle of no compromise mortification. And I put it here in the King James Version because the ESV waters this down and it loses a lot of the piercing nature of it. So anyways, Isaiah 30 verse 22 says, it's the Lord speaking to Israel about their idolatry. It says, you shall defile the covering of the graven images of silver and the ornament of your molten images of gold. So this is talking about their idols and it's saying, you need to defile these idols. You need to so despise these idols and idolatry that it would be seen as defiled in your mind. But then here's what it says they need to do. You shall cast them away from you as a menstruous cloth. You shall say unto it, get thee hence. To cast aside sin like it's this filthy rag on you. That's the attitude we ought to have to sin that This sin has touched me. How could I let this stay on me? I must cast it aside at once. I must be free of this at once. And to almost command our sin saying, get thee hence, get out of here, get out of my life. We can't allow sin to rest for one moment in our minds or hearts. And if you think about it, if you think about maybe the sin that you most struggle with, could be pride, lust, gluttony, self-righteousness. Most of you are not actively engaged in this sin in this moment. It's not something that you need to stop doing right now, but the question is, how do you not leave this place and fall back again into temptation? To once again fall prey to these temptations. The question is, how do we not allow sin to infiltrate our minds and bear fruit unto death? And I think the principle here to cast it aside, is to think that we cannot allow sin one moment to germinate. That as soon as we are assaulted with temptation, we must put it off right away. We must cast it aside right away to nip it in the bud, lest we give it an inch and it take a mile. We need to have a no-compromise attitude to sin, because when we recognize how it slows us down, how it steals our joy in the Lord, how could we not seek to put, off a, to put aside these weights of sin 
that slow us down. The obstacle of disobedience. If we are to run, run hard in the Christian life, we must put aside sin. But secondly, we often come across the difficulty of discouragement. Our life is filled with trials and temptations. Sometimes temptations seem to have the upper hand, sometimes trials. And trials, sufferings, have a way of weighing us down and discouraging us to the point where we want to give up. And we have need of endurance because life at times is very difficult. Maybe you are suffering with health infirmities. Maybe there are relationships that are broken and fractured in your life. Maybe there's struggles with work or finances. And these things, these pressures slow us down and make us be near to losing hope. To be discouraged is to lose courage, to not have courage to persevere. There's things negatively, but also positively, maybe it's a lack of fruitfulness. You poured into a child and maybe you aren't seeing fruit in their life or poured into a ministry in the church and you're not seeing fruit and you're tempted to give up. And so we will be told you have need of endurance. In the, in the Hebrew church, we're told in chapter 10, 34, that they were accepting the plundering of their goods. Just imagine the government going to your house while you're away this evening and ransacking it. And it said they accepted this joyfully. And yet the writer comes and says, you have need of perseverance. In their persecutions, in your sufferings, in your trials, there is great need of endurance, perseverance, steadfastness, patience. And when we think of battling discouragement, how do we best battle discouragement in our life? Uh, I think a helpful illustration I saw with the idea of running was I saw this interview with a marathoner, this lady named Tina who runs marathons, and there was someone interviewing her, and they asked her, what sort of thoughts are going through your head towards the end of the race? A marathon's about 26 miles, and it was very telling what she said. This is her thoughts at what happens in her head at mile 23. She says, okay, so at mile 23, the thought goes something like, this hurts. I can't do this anymore. I'm going to stop. Yeah, I'll just say that my foot was hurting too bad to run anymore. No, Tina, don't you dare. Just maintain. No need to run faster. Just keep going. You're fine. Okay, it must have been five minutes by now. Where's the 24-mile mark? Come on, legs. Oh, this hurts so much. I can't do this. Yes, you can. Believe, but I don't believe. Yes, you do. And this can be the sort of self-talk that we have in our life where it feels, how do I go on? How can I keep enduring this suffering? How can I bear this any longer? But we have something so much more powerful than this sort of positive self-talk that Tina does to motivate herself to take courage at the end of the race. We, when we are spoken to in discouragement, we can speak to our souls with the promises of God. Sure and true promises of God that give us courage, by which we find courage in our race. There's so many. As you read scripture, seek to meditate on mine promises of God. Promises like Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or Matthew 5, 6, that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness 
will be filled. Or Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Or beautifully, Isaiah 40, 29 to 31, that they who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So in discouraging circumstances, we need to speak to our own souls and encourage them with the promises of God. And remembering that we aren't running this race alone. When Jesus ascended, he said, I will send to you another helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, who is called the paraclete, meaning to come alongside. Have you ever been running alone and then someone comes alongside and the encouragement of even just their presence is a motivation? Be encouraged by the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life who comes alongside to comfort and encourage. As we face the obstacles of not just disobedience, but discouragement, we can be encouraged by the promises of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the third obstacle, the third hindrance to running is that of distraction. Maybe you're feeling like life is pretty good right now. You can't think of any major, willful, besetting sins. You don't feel pressed down by any particular trials or sufferings. But this item of distraction can get us all. We're so tempted to look away from eternity, to look away from Christ, to look away from the cross, from heaven, into the things that are around us. We do indeed live in the world, and we do have to live by faith, but the sight is so much more easy to succumb to. It so much more quickly takes over, but we're called to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set, set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're tempted to look to so many places other than to Jesus. One place we're tempted often to look is at ourselves. We love looking at ourselves. And if you try running, looking down at your feet, you're going to have difficulty. And there's two things that looking at yourself results in. Sometimes it results in despair. You look and you see your failings. You see your weaknesses. And you fall into despair. You don't feel all, you feel no worth in yourself. Or sometimes it results in pride. You look at yourself and think, I look pretty good. I'm actually pretty great. I think I'm doing quite well in life. But the problem is that in both of these circumstances, when you're looking at yourself, you've lost sight of the mission. You've lost sight of the calling we've been to, called to, the positive race we've been called to one, run, to do good works, to do as much good for the kingdom of God as we can. There's wise advice from Samuel Rutherford who said that to, for every look you take to self, look, take 10 looks to Christ. Whether you are, you're more tempted to look to yourself in despair or more tempted to look at yourself in pride, when you catch yourself doing that, look more to Christ. We're tempted to look at ourselves, but we're also tempted to look at others, right? How quick are we to compare ourselves, to measure ourselves by ourselves, which Paul says is foolish. And here's what happens when you compare yourself with others. It's a similar idea. You look at others either in envy, look at what they have and I don't have. How did they get 
that success in life and I didn't? Why do they have that kind of family and I don't? Or you're tempted to look to others in judgment. How can they be living that way? How come they let their kids do that? How come they're okay with this? Or why aren't they more concerned with this thing I am concerned about? Looking to one another's isn't helpful. And another problem we often have in the church is looking to others as our standards of righteousness. I will base what I allow my children to, to do by what I see the pastor allows their children to do. But when we're looking to one another, we lose the standard of God's word. And so we're either going to end up looking to culture and being more licentious and liberal than God's word, or looking to the laws of men, the laws of what we see others in the church. And both ways, we lose what God's word clearly tells us in the standard. We lose sight of our own race. We need to remember what it says um, in the book of 1 Corinthians that before their own master, each one stands or falls. You will answer to God for your actions. You will answer to God for your actions. Before their own master, each one stands or falls. We don't look at each other. Uh, No one knows this better than a 100-meter racer named Atto Bolden. He was from Trinidad and Tobago, and he competed in the 100-meter dash in the 1996 Olympics. And he was in a solid second place, But then at the last second, he looked over to check his competitors, and another competitor passed him, stole the silver medal, and he was relegated to third. And, of course, our great Canadian Donovan Bailey won the gold medal at that Olympics. So I'm okay that he got the bronze. But he said later in an interview, he said, no one knows this better than I, that if you look to your competitors, it slows you down. He said that you need to run a race like a horse in the Kentucky Derby as with blinders on. Just that thought, Lord, blind me to the envy of others, blind me to the discouragement when I look on social media and see what this person's doing and that, because I want to run my race, eyes fixed on Jesus. We don't look to ourselves, we don't want to look to others, and we don't want to look to the world. When you start diverting your gaze from Christ to success, to wealth, to having a good family, to having fun in life, All these various goals swerve us from the path God has called us to and distracts us. And we miss the fact that true meaning, true purpose, and true fulfillment in life does not come from any of these things, but it comes from following Christ. We don't look to the world, because to be carnally minded, to be earthly minded is death, but to be spiritually minded, to be heavenly minded, is life and peace. where we don't look. But where are we called to look in this text? We're called to look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. He is the one to whom we direct our gaze. And we look to him in a few different ways. We look to him as the author of our faith. The one who is also the object of our faith. Christ, the author of faith, the one who agreed in eternity past to be the ransom for his people, to provide for their redemption. Jesus Christ is the author of faith. You can't come to the Father except by him, trusting in his righteousness instead of your own. Through him is the only gate on the, to the race of faith. He is the door. We must enter by him and enter by him alone. We look to him as author, but we also look to Christ as the finisher of our faith. 
the one who alone provides and sends the Holy Spirit to empower our obedience, to work sanctification in our lives. He promises to finish the work he started, to perfect that which he began in us. We can trust him to finish the work. When we're discouraged by the lack of sanctification we see in our own lives, we can look to Christ as the finisher, to pray that he would work, trusting and knowing that he intercedes for us before the throne of the Father. He will never stop interceding for his people, and so you can trust that he will always continue doing that priestly work in heaven, interceding on your behalf before the Father for all those who trust in his name. We look to him as our finisher, but we also look to him as our example. He endured the cross, despising the shame, receiving that suffering, and yet he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face like flint to go to the cross. He's the ultimate example of perseverance. Jesus is the ultimate example of endurance in suffering. And so we look to him and learn from him as our example. But lastly, we look to him as our end. Jesus Christ, our text says, is seated at the right hand of God. He is in heaven, the first fruits of the resurrection, whom we will one day join. If we trust in Christ to be where he is, he's the end of our faith. He is the purpose for which we live. He is the joy set before us. The text says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That joy being the church, to have a redeemed people to dwell with, to live with forever. And that joy before him, he is now the joy before us. In older speak, the Puritans spoke of what they called the beatific vision, a blessed vision of Jesus Christ that at the end, after this world has passed away, to be in heaven and to see the reigning, resurrected Lord Jesus, to be filled with delight at the sight of Christ, the one whom our souls desire, the fairest of 10,000, the chiefest among the sons of men. He is the end of our faith. It is to him we look. Truly to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live for Christ is truly the only way to live. This race is the only race worth running. That is the only finish line worth pursuing. Those people in the world can run after money. They can chase after pleasures. They can chase after lusts. But to live is Christ. Would your life be Christ? Because it's only when you live Christ that dying is indeed gain. And don't you want to be able to say with the Apostle Paul at the end of your days that I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. All who have loved the appearing of Christ. The world chases after corruptible crowns, but we an incorruptible, kept in heaven for us, who by faith are kept by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's put off those hindrances to running and run with joy. Put off disobedience. Put off discouragement. Run freely. Run steadily. Run unswervingly, without distractions, blinders on, eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
we thank you for drawing us into this blessed race, that we have not been left to wander, that we have not been left without direction, but you guide us in your word. You guide us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit will apply these truths to our hearts. Grant us the power of endurance, the power of steadfastness, that we would hold the faith in dark days, that we would walk in holiness in a sinful world, that we would declare boldly the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would one day join those grandstands with those who have gone before us, faithful men and women of old, now praising our Lord Jesus Christ in glory. Sustain us and guide us unto that day. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.